0: On today's episode of How To OT, we're helping you get ready for the AOTA's 2019 Education Summit happening this weekend in Las Vegas by sharing an interview with Dr. Steve Taff on occupations and well-being in occupational therapy education, educational learning theory and philosophy, how occupational therapy is an educational enterprise, and how to promote diversity and inclusion within higher education and specifically occupational therapy education. We also touch on a topic I personally find very interesting which is the intersection of education, research and practice in occupational therapy. As always I'm your host Matt Brandenburg. Thanks for tuning in and let's get to it. Today I am joined by Dr. Steve Taft who is an associate professor in occupational therapy and medicine and the education division director in the program in occupational therapy at Washington University School of Medicine? He also directs the teaching scholars program at WashU School of Medicine. Dr. Taft's scholarly interests include critical learning theory and educational philosophy. He also happens to be my faculty mentor and I'm lucky enough to get to work with him quite frequently. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add to that um, bio? Well,
1: thanks. Thanks, Matt. That's very kind of you. <laughs> really, no, I think you hit one of the main ones. I think as we go and talk a little bit more in our conversation today, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about uh, many different areas because I have lots. That's part of my one of my issues is I have so many things I'm interested in, and for me, prioritizing my research and scholarly interests can be a challenge, but it's something that... Uh, Uh, I enjoy lots of different
0: things, so I'm sure we'll touch on those. Awesome. That sounds great to me. Um, And being a jack-of-all-trades, this might be a a tough question to start out with for you, but could you maybe provide a, a quick summary of your research? Absolutely.
1: So my research pretty much, I would say, goes into two big categories. One would be more about graduate student well-being and things that influence that, specifically OT students. Um, Things like emotion, mood, um, anxiety, depression, mental health, emotional well-being, that side of things and how those impact how graduate students perform academically. And I don't mean just grades, I mean more importantly to me is how do they interact with their peers, how do they engage in classes. Do they take advantage of other educational opportunities, those sorts of things? And then, so that's one bucket, if you will. The other one is a little bit more theoretical. That's educational theory, learning theories, educational philosophies, and really taking those and trying to apply those. And so philosophy can be very, in theory, both can be very intimidating to people, or they say, well, wait, I, I can't understand that. What I try to do is I try to take that and I try to translated into what I would call maybe usable form and so that um, educators and students can use it. Awesome. That's
0: very interesting. And I know a lot of your research, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is very educational based. It can be very valuable for OT educators. But it also sounds to me like there's going to be a lot of principles from what you found that can be applied to OT practice, just in the way you talk about your interest in student well-being and how they interact with each other, I think therapy managers or directors are going to be very interested in how those principles could apply to how their OT practitioners interact and how their well-being is, uh, despite their focus on well-being of their clients as well.
1: No, well, absolutely. I think that's a good point, and you know, I've said this a lot in our program is that. You know, I talk a lot about education, but if you look at it, occupational therapy is an educational enterprise. It's, you know, it's either in the one-on-one therapeutic encounter with families or in groups. You know, essentially an OT is teaching and learning with clients how to get them back to getting into performing their, you know, desired occupations. And so there definitely is a crossover. I appreciate
0: you bringing that up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess, what, what led you to, to focus on this in, in your research? What problem did you set out to solve initially?
1: Well, uh, I'll start with the kind of mental, emotional health side. One of the things that I've noticed, and I noticed this when I was a practitioner uh, working in the school system, I noticed this with younger uh, children and adolescents, kind of an increasing issue in terms of, you know, in the past, and when I say in the past, maybe two decades ago, emotional problems, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, those sorts of things were thought of as adult, air quotes, uh, adult, you know, conditions. Mm -hmm. What I started seeing as a practitioner uh, before I got into academia is that a lot of these things were starting to come into play at a very young age. And so that kind of translated to when I got to academia, I started seeing the same things. And I think across the board, when I talked to my colleagues at the School of Medicine and across the country in terms of OT programs, we're all seeing similar things. And we're seeing and it's not that every single student is stressed or anxious or depressed, but we're seeing a much higher prevalence of mental and emotional conditions in graduate students. And so I think it's it's a big issue. Number one, the humane aspect of it, you know, we just want people to, you know, have a good quality of life and have a good sense of well-being. But the other part is, is that it's impacting them. Quite frankly, it's impacting a lot of students in terms of, of their grades, in terms of what they're getting out of the uh, educational experience in terms of how they're engaging in educational um, activities, especially uh, experiential learning uh, activities, which require people to be engaged and be out either in the community or in simulation labs, that sort of thing. So that is something that I recognize and my colleagues do too that is a big issue and we want to see how we can address that. Um, The other part is in my PhD program, I learned a lot about, not just about philosophy and theory, but how that can impact people's daily lives. And people tend to think that's an ivory tower sort of thing, where, oh yeah, that's philosophers are sitting around in their smoking jackets in the French salons, (laughs) you know, talking about things that nobody understands. But really that that if you translate it and you look at the elements of it, you know it well enough, you can definitely apply it. And uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Richard Rorty. And he talks about capital or uppercase P philosophy and lowercase or, or, you know, P philosophy. And he says uppercase P philosophy is those philosophical aspects that I alluded to before that nobody really understands. You know, people, if you read a philosophy text by some of these folks, you can barely get through it. It's just very dense. It's really, I don't, I don't know if you try tried to read philosophy texts, I have to read them several times before I no. kind of get the gist of what's going on. But Rorty talks a lot about lowercase P philosophy, and that is philosophy... That, I guess he would say, helps us solve or address the dilemmas of everyday life, like conflict, things in terms of social justice, in um, terms about equity. So it comes into a lot of play. It can help us solve problems. And it can be, um, I guess he would consider it either an equal or at least, at the very least, a supplement to science. Which, you know, when we look at problems in society, social science or in natural science, mm-hmm. we look to science for those answers, right? Right. In what I think Rorty and what I think I believe as well is that philosophy can offer alternative or supplementary answers as well, and they're just as valuable.
0: That's very interesting. I've never heard that comparison between capital P and lowercase p philosophy. Um, As a student, it was just like a required class I took in undergrad and and experienced the same thing where I'd have to reread and reread certain texts. (laughs) So that brings to mind you worked on uh, developing a, a framework, the accountability well-being ethics framework. Ah, yes. Would you say that falls into lowercase p philosophy?
1: Absolutely. Thanks for referencing that. Yes, that that was a, uh, some colleagues of mine had proposed kind of a, looking at a different, as we entered into, um, you know, a second century of occupational therapy's existence, we were looking at an you know, comparing kind of what were the conditions and social problems and the things that needed to be addressed in the early 1900s. And then looking at them again in the, you know, 20-teens, and what were some of the similarities and what were different. And there's some similarities, but what we found is, in terms of context, a very different world, obviously, Mm -hmm. than what existed in, the you know, in 1917, for example, when the profession um, originated. And so what we suggested is, is that looking at this kind of three-part and accountability, looking at accountability to our clients, which is a different sort of concept that I don't think has come around about a lot. It's, it's big in human development world and capability approach, but also well-being, definitely that goes back to not just mental or emotional, but also physical well-being and ethics, and using ethics as a touchstone for kind of the social justice angle of helping all people live well and live well together. And so, yes, we, we definitely said the part, but, but the idea behind that was is that we use philosophical concepts. This AWE framework is meant to be a lowercase p yeah. framework. It's meant for practitioners and for clients and for everyone to use. It's It should not be above anybody's ability to understand. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I just mean that it, it is very purpose towards everyday life.
0: That's awesome. That's really, I think... Being a student, that's one of the things that I feel is really emphasized in my education. And not like it's being forced upon me, but I'm being reminded of the value of being able to go through that process in my future career. And if I can, I'll be able to help people more than if I could not. (laughs) Absolutely. It's good to hear. And with this, AWE, you said you and your colleagues were looking at some of the, I guess, needs of of this century of occupational therapy uh, could you explain some of, of what you found and what you observed sure
1: some of the some of the factors and, and there may be some correlates to you know the, to earlier times of some of the things that we're facing now um, that are I think at least the context if not the problem is a lot different what I would call and we could go on and we probably have a separate podcast about this and we <laughs> won't but um, not right now at least <laughs> you'll be thankful for but you know this whole idea of, of of technology which can be seen as a good thing but technology can also alienate people and can also bring on issues and so looking at that as a kind of a modern issue refugees people who are displaced we're seeing that more and more and more and certainly that's not new that's happened over time unfortunately but I think we're seeing a lot more of that we're seeing again again it's not entirely novel but in the context it is a lot of political instability a lot of conflict in the world One of the things that I think we're seeing more of that we didn't see are things like uh, resource scarcity, particularly water, food, land. All these things, I think, are placing stressors upon people's ability to engage in their desired occupations. And so that's a different way of looking at things, but I think we can't forget that the environment includes the natural environment. And when we're talking about resources, and if those things are getting scarce, it leads to more conflict. It leads to different practices. It leads to, you know, famine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit in that paper about um, water particularly is going to be a, a very scarce resource. But those are some of the things that we think are coming around that are a little bit different, in, as well as a whole new set of, you know, diseases and things like that. Again, not new. You know, we've been dealing with plagues and and sorts of things throughout history, but it's a new set Um, We're dealing with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, things like that. And so it's a little bit of a different context in terms of of how we approach, how people engage. And the other big difference is that we live in a much more flat, if you will, globalized world. We're not nearly as isolated. And that's made a big change on how, I think, uh, one has to look at the profession of occupational therapy or really anything. And so that's another huge change is kind of the globalized context that we live in now.
0: Awesome. And so I guess uh, aside from being informed on all these changes and taking into account the context of of our time, what would you recommend OT practitioners or educators or students like myself can do to to kind of face those contextual factors head on and, and work to, to get past?
1: Well, depending upon where you're working or when where one is working, whether it's in the States or, or abroad, you have to look at at the context and the culture, even the local mm-hmm. culture. I think we've got to pay more attention to that. Even in the U.S., we have differences in, in cultural, whether it's region, north, south, east, west. Look at what are those subtle factors that might impact people's decision-making and ability to engage in therapy. Uh, I think the other thing is, again, the globalized piece, I think it helps people understand about the impact of different cultures, ethnicities, religious beliefs, um, what people's different beliefs are of health. Um, what does health mean to folks? It doesn't always mean absence of disease. And so that's another thing to look at. And I think in terms of what it, what I think I hope, what we hope it guides uh, practitioners and educators to do, is to look at a few different ways of looking at the profession of occupational therapy. Looking as the occupational therapist as almost more of a coach or a co-learner as kind of this medical professional who has authority even though there's always that dynamic there. Also looking at kind of the more subjective aspects, making sure we know, making sure that we're very client-centered and offering a lot of choices, which, you know, we try to do, and I think is one of the hallmarks and one of the things that makes occupational therapy great is its kind of client-centered nature. Mm -hmm. But really honing in on that and expanding what we mean by client-centered to include lots of different things other than just giving clients choice, also respecting lots of different factors that come into play. Those are some of the things that I think will change practice in terms of of how we approach that kind of professional, healthcare professional and client dynamic, almost being more partners rather than kind of the authority type of
0: figure. I I really like that perspective, and it kind of helps me understand it and see it as how philosophy, when used to guide therapy, can help kind of Ensure that the practitioner has the right character or approach to to what they're going to do. I don't know if that was a good summary or not. No, no, absolutely. (laughs) And and, and it
1: could even boil down to the fact that, you know, if nothing else, and I understand, you know, all of this may be idealistic. You know, Mm -hmm. some folks would be saying, well, there's pressures about reimbursement mechanisms and, and productivity things. Fully understand that. But if we can get a little bit more of kind of, you know, essentially listening to our clients' narratives, their stories, and trying to, trying to. Tease apart what they give us in terms of their, or ask them for it, and make sure that we're looking at what's what re- me- really search for that meaning and value for them, and making sure that that is what we're working on. Absolutely, I love that. I love that.
0: Okay, I didn't, I didn't mean to get so in depth with the with the AWE, with <laughs> okay. that That's a little okay. bit more. No worries. Uh, one thing I found pretty fascinating, but maybe going back to your your two uh, main research emphases of well-being for, for students and then basing things in, in philosophy. Is there, is there more you'd like to tell us about those two?
1: Well, I think kind of covered, I think you're, you're bringing up the, the AWE is an excellent example of kind of translating philosophy into more therapeutic realms. I think we've kind of covered that, which I think was really really good. In terms of the, the kind of student well-being, Mm-hmm. I, I think that is a huge aspect, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think in the uh, Innovations in Education Lab, we have lots of students that are studying this, and, and I think it's so expansive, and it goes beyond just the mental, emotional, because well-being, if you look at what is well-being, it's, it's lots of different factors. And so we have students that are studying sleep, physical activity and their impact, people's engagement in community and that sense of well-being that, that gives them, does, how does that help folks? Mm-hmm. And so I think that is really an untapped area for research and it also kind of dovetails in with another area that that I'm interested in that I didn't really mention before, but it's kind of an offshoot of the well-being, which is my interest in issues surrounding diversity and inclusion in higher education. Mm-hmm. And I kind of that kind of fits under the larger umbrella of well-being if you will, but just looking mainly at my idea there is looking at, you know, inclusive building, what makes an inclusive learning climate? How can we build and maintain an inclusive learning and working climate? What sorts of things can institutions and programs of higher education, how can we make sure that not only do we get folks who add dimensions of diversity into our programs, into our profession, but how do we make them feel welcome? And I feel like that is a big disconnect. I feel like Many times the idea is to, well, we have to, quote, increase our diversity numbers, which means bring more folks in who are underrepresented in, which I think is a wonderful goal because I think the profession needs more diversity. Programs need more diversity. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. But I think that's, that's not where it ends. And I think that's the mistake a lot of institutions make is that, oh, OK, we brought some folks in. I'm really interested in the inclusion piece, which is once folks get here. Are they made to feel welcome? Are they made to feel part of the, the social, intellectual fabric? Um, are their opinions valued? Um, you know, Do they have folks that they can connect with? The sorts of things that you know lead to retention and really enjoying the experience. And those are the factors I'm really looking into, um, starting to look into with some groups here. We're getting ready to start a diversity and inclusion research group. Um, we haven't really decided on the name yet, but... Looking at issues in Washu School of Medicine, looking particularly at how diversity and inclusion plays out in education, and um, getting a wide variety of different folks from different areas, um, medicine, occupational therapy, very interprofessional, social work, you name it, mm-hmm. to study some of these issues. And so that's uh, an area that I think I wanted to mention that's kind of under well-being, but is a little bit of
0: an offshoot. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting, I know you you have played a role in in diversity and inclusion on uh, WashU's Med campus, and the research may be in uh, early stages, uh, but right now, if if you could say maybe some things that schools or universities could do to promote inclusion and well-being and that feeling of I don't know I guess inclusion is is what it is. Right. Uh, what what would you say some of those things are? Well, I think one of them, and it sounds really like very common sense,
1: but I think sometimes the things that are most obvious, we, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sometimes gloss over. And I think one thing is just to be really intentional. Programs and institutions, I think, need to be really intentional about and explicit about what are they going to do. They can't just say, oh, yeah, we, you know, held a welcome reception or something, but it has to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everything from looking at how you're teaching in your classrooms, are your faculty... Using, you know, kind of what I would call a culturally humble approach. You know, are they aware of their implicit biases and are they able to make sure that those don't surface or minimize how they're surfaced in the classroom? All the way to curriculum design. You know, do your case studies, are they representative of of elements of diversity? Do folks that are underrepresented see themselves? I think that's the thing. They need to see themselves as belonging, whether that's in print. In visual form, in case studies, they definitely need to see themselves. They also need to be um, supported, and what that means, like providing affinity groups that help folks that are underrepresented kind of gather with other folks. Maybe like from medicine, let's say, if you're an international student, maybe starting an affinity group with the MD students or other students, so that some of the international students can get together and kind of have an affinity group. Mm -hmm. Now. Having said that, I don't want to say that, that they're segregated or isolated, but also being really intentional about making sure that, that there's opportunities for folks who are underrepresented to mix in and get involved with the fabric of, of, of the entire diversity that we can bring to bear, and making sure that they're involved in you know, things both social and intellectual, um, having discussion groups, um, offering forums for folks to come and talk to folks if they feel like there's an issue, making sure that faculty and other students act as allies. Uh, When they see something going down that is not right, they need to stand up for it. And there's other ways to be allies, too. And so those are a few of the things that we can do, I think, as a start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those sound like great suggestions or recommendations. Um, And and hearing you explain all this, it sounds like it's maybe commonplace for people to recognize that they can improve diversity and improve inclusion, uh, but maybe to treat it as a problem that has kind of just an isolated solution just to increase membership from underrepresented uh, populations but really it's something to be considered in every aspect of running an educational program
1: absolutely and so what we're gonna to try to find out is you know what are the best practices in each of those areas or if they don't
0: exist let's develop them awesome. that is that is exciting where where could somebody follow um, this research that you're going to be well, providing it. Well, that's that's that a question. that's
1: a great question um, yeah. because our group really is kind of in its kind of very primordial stages. It's just starting out. Okay. But in terms of, I think there is there is a publication that that is in press now in Academic Medicine. Um, I think that is kind of the maybe could be seen as kind of the start mm-hmm. of this scholarship, and that's I don't know exactly when it's coming out. It's in press now. Just submitted the final revisions, but that basically was a systematic review. What we were looking for is how do people teach diversity and inclusion, so to speak, in healthcare? And if so, what were the identified best practices? And we we're looking for that. And really what we found is that there's not necessarily there's a constellation of things people do, but there really wasn't anything in the literature at least that we did in this very comprehensive systematic review that identified like One thing, you know, it's like that one thing that people did. I still think it was instructive because it highlighted some of the things that people do. But I think that's some of the people that worked on that systematic review will be part of this new group that's starting to do some scholarship. And so it'll be a little while. There'll be a little lag time, but I think we'll start producing some research very soon. And at least that one
0: will be impressed, I would
1: hope, um, sometime in
0: 2019. That's great. That's great to hear. When it is impressed, maybe we'll we'll talk about an update here on on the podcast again. Would love to. I mean, as yeah. some of that as some of that research gets going, I would love to
1: talk more specifically about that mm-hmm. in a future podcast. That would be great. Awesome.
0: So I have a I have a question here for you that kind of I guess kind of changes subjects a little bit. Um, but before I ask that, I want is there anything else you want to say about this topic? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think.
1: I think people understand, alluding to the last topic, I think people understand, obviously, the importance of Mm -hmm. of diversity and inclusion and how not only is it the right thing to do, um, but it also has lots of other benefits, from social benefits to creativity to problem-solving benefits. There are a hundred great reasons why um, we should increase diversity in all professions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I think... You know, I don't think anyone could argue that. So I'm really excited about where we're at. We're just getting started, um, especially in occupational therapy. And we're not alone in that. We've got a long way to go, but we're working at it. And there's groups like COTAD, the Coalition for Occupational Therapy, Advocates for Diversity, and MDI and some other things at the AOT level, AOTA level um, that are really doing some great work. And, um, you know, for example, COTAD, they're starting local program chapters now. And so that's a, kind of a grassroots effort that got started a few years ago that's really gaining steam. And I think that's really going to make a difference. But I just think it's critical as we go yeah. forward. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Starting is always the hardest part. So absolutely, it's encouraging to know that our profession is, is starting. So for, from my perspective as a student, I feel like my education and future clinical practice are very, uh, I guess, intertwined, because I engage in some aspect of, of both on a daily basis. But one thing I've heard is that in kind of our profession within occupational therapy, there's somewhat of a divide between education and, and clinical practice. Have you heard about this perceived uh, divide? And can you talk about about it? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't, I
1: think people perceive it. I think people see it. I don't know how well publicized. I don't think people have written a lot about it. But if you look at kind of three big areas, and that's not to, you know, exclude like advocacy and and other things in terms of, or in community engagement as kind of big categories. But if you look at kind of the three major areas of of occupational therapy, that would be education, research and practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... Each of those in their own way is developing, obviously, with practice obviously being, I would say, the most furthest ahead in terms of its historical development. Education has really started getting going in the last few years with the uh, OT educational research agenda and really starting to look at education, educational scholarship. Research, obviously, OT science is relatively young, but it's building and it's critical that we continue to build that. And so each is gaining strength in its own area. But I think the issue is, is that they tend to be a little bit segregated. They tend to be kind of not just temporally or in terms of the linear sequence of an order of what goes first, for example, but just in terms of how they're looking at integrating those. And so one of the things we're trying to do here at WashU um, that I hope can be in you know, other places are replicating is we're looking at how can we integrate research practice and education. What we're trying to do is having more experiential learning clinics where we have kind of this practice education pieces together that are great. I mean, those are fantastic. Even if students rotate through as a level one, not just for the students who are in it, but if we could get into where all the students could rotate through those, fantastic way to get some real clinical you know, interchange. That's one way that I think we can mm-hmm. integrate practice and education but then there's the next step which is okay so if we do that how do we integrate research into that and so a lot of this falls into that whole translational research realm and so the research that we're doing you know can't just stop at the clinical research stage and say okay this is what we found i think the idea then is how do we do that translate that into actual practice Mm -hmm. and quality practice and practice that Clinicians, that's realistic for clinicians to carry out, and also that is effective, obviously, right? And so I think that should be a long-range goal of the profession in general is how do we integrate? And there's probably lots of different ways to integrate. And I think one of the things is is that in education, for example, one of the ways that we can integrate, better integrate research is, is to continue to work on providing new ways and engaging ways to teach students the latest evidence and make sure that they know um, what's effective and what's helpful for clients. Um, That's another way to do it. But I think we've got a long way to go. And so, you know, in some ways it's an artificial breakdown, but I think we can work on that. And that's something I think we're just starting to delve into. So I perceive it. I perceive kind of that disconnect in all those areas. And we're just now starting to try to address that. And I think once we do, I think it's gonna only strengthen all three areas.
0: Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Funny you mentioned this kind of uh, translation of research into practice and into education. Uh, that's one of the purposes or hopes of this podcast, uh, is that through I guess, more passive methods of, of research consumption, like listening to a podcast, evidence and best practices can be translated into practice. Um, easier and, and quicker, I would say.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a, as a medium, it's it's a great way because if you look at how people, you know, practitioners, you know, they might go to conferences, things like that. They might read OT practice. They might have certain avenues to look at certain research findings and think, oh, I might be able to apply that in my practice. But I think, you know, you know the idea of a podcast or what you say more passive where people can, you know, repetitively listen to it, listen to it on their own, you know, at their own time, within their own time and space. I think having that avenue is really going to help in regards to this translational issue, which I think is the biggest issue facing our profession in terms of, you know, new clinical research and then not just saying, oh, that's great, we found this, but all right, how does that really matter to our clients? How does that make their lives better? That's yeah. what it's all. That's what it's all about, right? And so, I think, I think this is a wonderful medium to do that.
0: Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I really like this uh, integration of education, research, and and practice. Uh, and I wanted to ask you what you would recommend to an OT practitioner. On on what role they can play in integrating these three big categories.
1: Well, I think and a lot of this may not be entirely novel, but I think, you know, mostly you know we have to get continuing education in order to you know depending upon your state license, your laws all you know you need to keep your continuing in Missouri continuing competency credits, you know professional development units also as well as to keep your R if that's what you want to do. But I think it's important. Um, Not just for that purpose, but to really look in your area of practice and really seek out those areas of research. And and when you get there, and here's the other thing, is if you're at a conference or at a workshop to be an engaged participant, they might be saying, hey, here's a new clinical research method, but really challenge them and and try to engage in a dialogue and making sure that there's a discussion had about how is this really going to work in practice? and what are the obstacles to translation. I think those conversations need to happen kind of in the moment, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one thing in terms of research. In terms of education, I mean, I think I even encourage students to do this. When you see something that's like the latest evidence, you know, one of the things we need to do is not only do we need to teach students in terms of practice what the latest evidence is, but we need to integrate that and look at it. And how can that have an impact maybe on education? There might be some you know, I talk a lot about just because that's my bailiwick is kind of education. I talk a lot about how that can translate over to practice. But there are things that practice have to teach education as well. And so it's not just a one-way street. And so looking to practitioners and so whether it's being like, for example, we have an academic advisory board mm-hmm. here at WashU. You know, if you're a practitioner and there's a local OTA program or OT program, maybe approach them and say, hey, you know, As a clinician, um, would you be interested in having a conversation or can you gather some of us local clinicians and we can have, you know, quarterly, we can have meetings about what we see in practice. And and that's a way to kind of give back to the educational community.
0: I think any effort to increase that collaboration and integration, I think, can only mean good things for for the profession as a whole. Absolutely. That's awesome. Is there anything else you would like to bring up or, or focus on right now?
1: I don't think so. Not today. Hopefully you'll have me back and we'll talk about something else. (laughs) I would love to have
0: you back. And I guess in in conclusion, is there a a story or a a specific experience that you've had in doing your research that has been impactful that, that maybe you'd like to share? Well,
1: and this may not be unique, but I think in terms of just looking at, for example, looking at educational philosophy or theory and this is kind of not so much a clinical example but I've had students come back and say you know it's kind of almost like this delayed gratification situation where in the moment students may or may not perceive the value of of philosophy and theory but it doesn't happen all the time I'm not going to say that but I've had several students come back later and say you know at the time I really didn't connect why we are kind of quote, backtracking into philosophy and theory when we were talking about therapeutic approaches or educational approaches. And they've said, but after I got clinical experience, I started understanding that what anything that we do, any kind of intervention that we do, if we're becoming academics, any, lear, any learning activity we do, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It comes from somewhere. And it is very helpful to go back and see what theories and what philosophies inform that. What do those theories and philosophies say? It's not just, when I say that we're doing an experiential learning activity, it's not just that people are active. There's a whole lot of other things, if you go back in theory and philosophy, that there are kind of hidden contextual meanings about what that means and how it leads to student growth. Those sorts of things, those subtle aspects are things that people come back later and say, you know, I appreciate that now. Maybe not in the time, but now I appreciate the value of going back, if you will, and making sure we trace the roots of what we're doing and make sure we know where they come from and how they developed is very important to kind of making sure you have kind of a quality improvement mindset. You can always improve upon what you're doing. And so I've had, you know, not a particular story, but I've had, you know, at least a handful of students come back and say, hey, I appreciate what you were trying to deliver to us a lot more now than I did then." And so... That's gratifying to hear, not because, you know, it was me, but because they understood it and it's helping them in practice.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'll be sure to come back in a couple of years and and express the same sentiments. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I hope you do come back. (laughs) More talks. We can do more podcasts. I'd love to. I'd love to. Well, I wanted to thank you again for your time. Uh, Thank you for your research. And really, I think some of the things that stuck out the most to me today that I hope to implement into my future career would just to be truly client-centered, to always consider the contextual factors of my environment and the environment of my clients or colleagues or anyone I'm working with, and also just to truly have my clinical reasoning based in philosophy and have a strong base that that I can use to intervention plan and use to engage in the OT process so I can help people achieve the best health outcome. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. No, thank you. Doing great stuff here. Thanks. (laughs) Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this interview with Dr. Steve Taff was helpful in learning together about how philosophy can be used to solve problems of everyday life, how OT practitioners can stress and focus on the importance of context and culture and in all that we do, and how OT can fulfill its unique role in the healthcare system as a coach and co-learner, which can really lead to truly client-centered care as well as the importance of improving your knowledge in each of the main areas of OT. That's education, practice, and research. And how working on your personal expertise in each of these areas can promote the highest quality of care that's delivered to the people you work with every day. If you have any questions or want to learn more about any of the topics discussed on this episode, fill out our post-listener survey, which you'll find a link to in our episode description.